We'll be in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 24 today. Um, that's page 945 in the Bibles around the room. And I'm going to read the, the text, and when I'm done, I'll say this is the reading of God's word, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we are very thankful that we get to come here today and hear him speak. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the powder no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from sorry, the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. This is the reading of God's word. God. Let's pray, church. Lord, how wonderful it is to be called your children. How merciful you are, God, to turn us from traitor to beloved. Thank you, God, for your grace that strips away our unrighteousness so that we can walk as your sons and daughters. God, help us to be a people that desires your will to be done, your kingdom to come. For from you and through you and to you are all things to your glory forever. I pray you set our minds and hearts on you, God, as we move through your holy word. Speak through Pastor Kyle. Use him as your vessel for your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Casey. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. My name is Kyle. If you're a guest here. Welcome to Living Stones. I'm one of the pastors, and it really is my privilege to be able to speak to you about what the Bible says today, and if you didn't have one open for that little time, grab one of the, rounds, uh, the Bibles around you or steal one off your neighbor next to you and open up to Romans chapter 9, which is on page 945 on the black hardback Bibles we set around the room. And uh, 
I'm a little uh, tired today. I didn't sleep great last night, so I've been chugging coffee all morning. So it's probably going to kick in like halfway through the sermon. So just be warned. <laughs> but uh, it really is good to be here. And it's good that we get to gather every week, isn't it, church, to worship God. And it's just like a good reset button to get our hearts right with him. Um, we are in Romans 9. Now, to be honest, this is one of the most controversial texts in the whole Bible. So it's going to be really fun today. Uh, but here's, here's what I want you to know is, first of all, that as your pastor, I love you deeply. And because I love you deeply, um, I'm, my job is not to preach my opinion. My job is simply to let the text talk, simply to present to you what the Bible says. And um, it's okay today if you are, if this, some of this, is what the Bible says is hard to swallow, um, if you're always agreeing with God, it means you have a God that you've made up in your own mind, a God who is made in your image. But one of the things that shows us that God is God is that sometimes we're going to have uh, wrestling with him. Sometimes he's going to say things that we're not going to like. And I think some of those things might be said in this text today. And I just want to encourage you today that it's okay to wrestle as long as we do it humbly. Uh, even the Jews, the father of the Jews was a guy named Jacob, and there was a time in his story when God came down and visited him, and Jacob wrestled with God all night long. And at the end, God finally dislocated, you know, God's like just, it's like with a dad with your kid, you're just like, oh, you got me. Ah. And then God dislocated his hip, and forever Jacob ended up walking with a limp, and it was the mark that he had met with God. And from that day forward, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and the name Israel means those who wrestle with God. And after that, as the Jews started binding their texts together, they would actually take the sinew of an animal's hip and use that as they bound the scriptures together, because they meant that every time you picked up the Bible, if you're reading it accurately, you're going to wrestle with God. And that is what we're going to do here today. So my invitation is for you to do it humbly and uh, honestly. And it's okay. And if you're not a Christian, uh, it's good for you to be here because this is what you're going to hear plainly what the Bible says. But you're also going to have questions. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to have questions. Um, what Paul is addressing in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans is this idea of grace pure grace. Grace is the loving work of God that he gives to us even when we don't deserve it. It's God's love coming toward us that has nothing to do with us. It's his one-way love. And in this section, Paul is identifying, Paul is the writer of this book, and he's saying that God's faithfulness is shown to us, not because of our faithfulness to him, but because he chooses to love who he chooses to love. The way that I'll say it today is this, that God elects to love because he elects to love. Why does God elect to love? Because he does. And that's what Paul is saying. So it starts out in chapter, or in verse six of chapter nine. It says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
So Paul is starting out this little section, and he's, he's answering the question, has God forgotten to be faithful? In the previous section, Paul was mourning the fact that there's so many people in this world who don't know Jesus. Particularly, he was mourning the fact there's many Jews who, uh, ha- although they have the scriptures and they have the covenants and they have the promises, are not worshiping the Christ. And he's grieved in his heart over it. And people would ask him, well, does that mean that God's promise has failed? And Paul's answer is no. Because God's faithfulness has never been determined by our faithfulness to him. God's faithfulness has been determined and demonstrated by who he chooses to love. And so I'm going to read the the rest of this section and then explain it. Hang with me if you don't understand because Paul's referencing Old Testament stories. It says in verse uh, 8, it says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What Paul is saying in this section is long before we choose to love God, God chooses to love us. And that is the demonstration of his faithfulness. And he says, this is how it's always been. And he references two stories, a story of a guy named Isaac and a story of a guy named Jacob. And so the first story is the story of Isaac's birth. God had come to Abraham and said, Abraham, the whole world is is living apart from me, but through you and your offspring, I'm going to send a savior. Now, Abraham uh, didn't have any kids. And his wife was barren. So he's like, yeah, God, that's kind of impossible. And God said, no, trust me, I'll do it. Several years went by and still no baby for Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And so they came up with a good idea. Let's take this into our own hands. Sarah said, hey, I have a servant girl named uh, Hagar. Why don't you take her and go sleep with her? And Abraham, like a dumb dude, is like, okay. And he goes (laughs) and he sleeps with her. And they have a child named Ishmael. But then God shows up and says, no, 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 no. This is not how I planned it. It's not through Ishmael. It's, it's through Sarah. Sarah's going to have a child. And so years go by and, and Hebrew says that both Abraham and Sarah get so old, they are as good as dead. And, ev- and then eventually God comes to them and says, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And sure enough, the next year, Sarah has a child named Isaac. And what Paul is saying in this section is it wasn't just simply being a part of the family of Abraham that meant you were part of God's blessing. It was that you were a part of the promise. It was God chose Isaac long before he was born. And then Isaac had uh, continued that promise. Isaac had two children with a lady named Rebecca, and they had twins. And while they were in the womb, um, there was two of them. There was named Jacob and Esau. And the way it worked in that culture was the firstborn child would be the child that would be considered the one carrying out the blessing. But as they were in the womb, God told them, the older one will serve the younger one. In other words, 
It's going to be the one I choose who's going to carry out the blessing. And so Jacob was the one that God chose, and Jacob became the nation of Israel. Esau became the nation of Edom, and God chose to make his covenant with Israel. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. God, because he's God, elects to choose whom he will love because he elects to choose whom he will love. It is his choice. Um, Long before they were born, Paul said. Before they had done anything good or bad. It's not about works, but it's about him who calls. This is the doctrine of election. Now, at first we might say, well, I thought I chose God, right? Like we think back about it and we're like, no, I remember the day when I like gave my life to God. It's like, yeah, you did. But long before you chose God, he chose you. Um, I like, I've said it before, I like how Steve Brown, Dr. Steve Brown, the preacher in Florida, he says it like this. He says, I thought I took the first step towards God and choosing him. And then he responded by taking a step towards me. But by the time I got to the third step, I realized it was God who took the first step. It was God who worked on my heart long before. And it's funny, when I talk to people who aren't Christians, if you're not a Christian, you might be in this category, a lot of the people who aren't Christians have no problem with this doctrine. They're like, well, yeah, if God's God, he should get to choose. It's after we become Christians that eventually we start to have a problem with this doctrine. And I think the reason is because perhaps after a while we start to think that it's us who brought something to the table. But that's not grace. Grace is that God loves us in spite of us. And think back to your own story, Christians. Like I think about my story of the little boy, five years old, out on the playground, playing in the dirt where all little boys should be. And all of a sudden I was convicted that I was a sinner breaking God's commands and going to hell. I remember the weight of it just hit me. And I ran up to my teacher, Mrs. Hadamio, who was about four foot nothing. And I said, Mrs. Hadamio, I'm going to hell. And she said, Kyle, you don't have to. Because Jesus came and he loved you and he died for you and he resurrected for you. You can have life with God forever. And on that day, I believed. Now I could say, I'm the one who chose God on that day, but did I really orchestrate all of that? Did my five-year-old self really choose to be condemned as a sinner out there in the dirt? (laughs) And think of all the things that she could have said to me. She could have said, oh, it's okay, Kyle, get out there and start playing. You're not going to hell. She could have said, you're at a Christian school, it's okay. No, God had orchestrated the whole moment before the foundations of the earth. And think about it, the only reason I was at that school is because my parents put me in the Christian school because I was a terrible kid. They were like, maybe God will fix him. (laughs) But think about that. My mom became a Christian sometime after high school and she remembers that when she was a little kid, she was going to get baptized in the Mormon church and on the day that she was about to do it, she heard the word, run. Do you think she planned that? My dad was a Christian and he remembers his older sister gathering the neighborhood kids to 
to do vacation Bible school during the summer and share gospel stories. Do you think he organized that? No. Long before we choose to pursue God, he's pursuing us. And that's such good news. My friend Ty Neal in Las Vegas, a preacher down there, he says, Kyle, I heard about election. I said it had to be true because there's no way I would have chose God. I was living it up. A lot of preachers won't talk about this, but sin is fun. And living life, yeah, it might not fulfill you, but when you're living in sin, you don't want to choose God. We need God to pursue us. But the natural question we say is, well, that's not fair, right? We say, if God chooses some and not others, how is that fair? Well, look at what verse 14 says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I love how Paul just anticipates the questions that we're asking. He says, by no means. And this, what he's about to get into is this, this wonderful fact that God chooses not based on fairness, but based on mercy. Now, it's interesting that a lot of times we have this problem. We say, it's not fair that God chooses, but we have no problem giving that, that right to choose to people. Like, nobody goes up to the groom who just got engaged and says, there's so many other qualified women out there. How dare you choose her? Like, nobody does that. We celebrate the fact that the groom has chosen covenantal love with his bride, and that's how covenantal love works. And God, as the initiator of covenantal love, has the right to do it. And, but, but still, we say, it's still not fair. And Paul says, is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. May it never be. In verse 15, he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Which is really funny that Paul says that. Because Paul doesn't deal with the issue of justice. Did you catch it? They're saying, is God being unjust? And Paul just switches the subject and starts talking about mercy. You know why he's saying that? Because to ask if there's injustice when it comes to salvation is the wrong question. Because salvation is not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy. If God were to give us justice, none of us would be saved. The only reason we have a problem with God choosing to bestow mercy on some and not others is because we think that God owes all of us something. It's because we think that we bring some level of goodness to the table. Maybe not all people, but most people we say. And so therefore we say, well, it's not right that God chooses some or others. But the issue is this, Paul has already established that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned against him. There's a lot of good people according to society's standards, but according to God's court of law, being good isn't good enough. There is no human who stands qualified to enter into relationship with God and be with him in heaven. It's not like God is like some person at a college looking at all these qualified candidates and saying, well, I'll allow some of them to get in. God is looking at all of us, as Paul has said in Romans 5. He says we're all criminals against God and enemies in his court. He looks at all of humanity as his enemies and says, ah, but I'll choose some. 
It's not an issue of justice. It's an issue of mercy. And that's why he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you look at that quote, it's actually, uh, it, it can also be translated, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have grace on whom I have grace. It's his choice. And then so Paul said, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't depend on our will. God does not show up to us and make himself attractive and say, okay, now you got to will yourself to believe. Thank you, Lord, that he doesn't do that. And he also doesn't, it's not like God is a time traveler who like travels into the future and then sees who's going to choose him and then travels back to the past and says, okay, I'm going to choose them. Because it's not dependent on human will or exertion. It's dependent on God who has mercy. Paul says this, before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. It's not dependent on will. And it's also not dependent on exertion. God's choice of who he bestows his mercy and love on is not dependent on our good works. It's not dependent on our zeal. It's not dependent upon your church attendance. It's not dependent upon your tithing. It's not dependent about how many times you read the Bible during the week. It's not dependent upon your holiness or your obedience. It's not dependent upon anything except for his mercy. His mercy alone. So thank God that that's how it works. Like, can you imagine if it was really dependent upon our will? What if you go through a season of doubt? What if you have a moment where your will struggles and you take your life though you've believed? Good thing it's not dependent on our works. What, what, if, what if we get to heaven and God actually reveals the nature of our heart and he's like, yeah, your good works definitely don't outweigh your bad. What if God says to us, yeah, you can't even live up to the standards by which you judge other people. Can you imagine, like Paul uses the language of adoption in chapter 8. Can you imagine an adoptive parent saying to the kid they bring in the family, okay, you can only be in this family as long as you do a really good job as a kid and you always want to be here. That's not love. That's not a burden any child could handle. And as children of God, that's not a burden any of us can handle. Thank goodness our salvation is dependent upon his mercy and his mercy alone. And now it gets tough to swallow. Because here's the next thing that it means. God's choice is not about us at all. Look at what it says. He says, for he says for the scripture says to Pharaoh, which pause there, a little side note. Paul is quoting God, but he says the scripture because in Paul's mind, the scripture and God speaking are the same thing. Back at it. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So what this is, Paul is referencing another story. It's the story of the Exodus. 
And in this story, God's people are living in Egypt and, and they're under the rule of a tyrannical king named, his name is, well, I, he's the title Pharaoh, but we just know him as Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is, uh, he, he's enslaving God's people. God's people start to cry out to God and say, God, will you please deliver us? God hears their cries and sees their affliction. And so he identifies a guy named Moses and he sends Moses to his people. And he says, through Moses, I'm going to do these great miracles and I'm going to set you guys free. But in Exodus chapter four, he tells Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And because God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God did 10 plagues. And through those plagues, his, his wrath and his power was shown. And then God led them out into the wilderness And then Pharaoh came chasing after the people. God split the Red Sea. God's people went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army went in and God collapsed the Red Sea on them and God's people were set free. So God is the one who orchestrated all of that because he chose to save Israel and he chose to harden Pharaoh. Which then our quick rebuttal is, well, does that make me a robot? Don't we ask, I mean, am I just a puppet? And the answer to this is no. Clearly we're not. Your decisions, you're responsible for your decisions. They're your decisions. Somehow, God is sovereign over all choices, and we also have choice, and they coexist. And that's a mystery. And it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to our finite minds, but that's okay. I think that's part of living in faith, is we have to be okay with the mystery, like, and we're okay with this, a lot of things in life. Like when I was a little kid, um, I didn't know how bank accounts and debit cards worked. I just knew that when we went to McDonald's, my mom gave the lady a little card. She swiped the card, she smiled, gave it back, and then I got a cheeseburger. <laughs> I didn't know how that all worked. It was a mystery, but I delighted in it. And that's the invitation for us in this. How does God's hardening and choosing work with our choice? I don't know. It's a mystery. And I think if you try to solve that mystery, you end up in error on one side or the other. It's a mystery, but God is calling us to delight in it. But the big idea that Paul is trying to get at right here is he was, look at what he says to Pharaoh. He says, so that my power might be shown and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God do it? So that his name would be proclaimed as great. Amen. It is about him, not about us. Church, living stones, it is about him, not about us. Who gives a damn If people know the name of living stones, we want them to know the name of our Lord. It is about him, not about us. And at first, that's so hard to swallow because we're so narcissistically focused, are we not? Like, people are like, it's our culture making us narcissistically focused. No, it's sin. The I generation, the selfie generation is just sin bearing fruit. Augustine used to say that that sin causes us to be inward focused. And even in our salvation with God, there's a tendency where we want it to be about us and not about his name. But that would be settling for less. That would be enslaving, not freeing, because we were created to be in his image to be about him. 
You will be most fully human when you're living for him. Your salvation will be most sweet and savoring to your soul when it's about him and his beauty and his glory. It's about him. Can you imagine taking a friend who's never been to Lake Tahoe? You take him up to Emerald Bay and you're sitting there and you're looking at sunset. You're just like looking at it and they're sitting with their back to it. And they're like, I just don't know why you're looking, not looking at me. You're like, because there's something much better right here. But to approach God where salvation and our relationship with is all about us, God is saying, there's something much better. The beauty of my everlasting name. Your name, church, I love you. Our name will be forgotten. God's name won't. And so this is an invitation for us to be freed from narcissism. This doctrine is, a, is an invitation for us to, be, to, to live freely, truly. Hey, it's not about me. I didn't start it. I'm not going to finish it. It's all about him. He's the one who gets the glory. But still, it's hard to swallow. But we have to know, for my last point, because God is God, he has the right to choose. He elects to love because he elects to love because he has the right Look at verse 19, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? This is a natural question. If it's God who chooses and God who hardens, how can God send anybody to hell? Who can resist God's will? Look at the next verse. Verse 20, I want everybody to read it. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now that's a punch in the throat. Let's be honest. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Here's what I want you to know. Uh, I don't think that Paul is saying this to the person who is humbly asking questions of God and is humbly like saying, God, I'm just having a difficulty understanding. Will Will you please show me your way and help me to have peace if I don't understand Paul's not punching that person in the throat. Paul is coming at the person who's saying, what gives God the right? Who does he think he is to choose some and choose others and send some to hell? That's the person that Paul gets in their grill and says, lovingly, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But here's the thing. All of us get into that proud position. This language is, it's mirroring language that God says to the, to the righteous servant Job. If you read the book of Job, it's a very boring book, but it's good. Because in the beginning, God, uh, he, he bestows suffering on Job. And then the whole book is Job battling with suffering. And in the beginning, he's doing it well. But at the end of the book, he starts saying to God, God, what gives you the right to do this to me? I'm righteous. And it's at that point that God shows up for three chapters and says, oh, Job, you were there when I made the seas? You were there when I made the heavens? Who do you think you are? And that's the language that Paul is using here. When we get proud, that we need to be set back into our place. Paul is drawing a distinction of who is God and who is creation. And to be fully human means we need to accept our place as creation. 
And so he goes into the next verse and he says, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Right now in the LS kids, there's, they're playing with Play-Doh and the teachers are telling the kids, how silly would it be if the Play-Doh started arguing you, with you about what shape you were making them into? It doesn't have the right because you're the creator. Well, God is the creator of us. It's really silly for us to start telling him he doesn't have the right. He does. And then he says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, when a potter is making the uh, utensils and stuff for a household, he knows that some of the things he's making are going to be put on display as art and some of them are going to be used for practical things like being a trash can. And because he has a master plan, he has the right to form out of the same lump whatever he chooses. And it's his right because he's the maker. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to see. This is where it can be challenging. God has the right to do this. He has the right. And then he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. He says, what if God is at work? Because sometimes, even in this life, we're like looking and we're like, man, this is just so crazy. What gives God the right? And then there's all these evil people and we know that that something needs to happen. And what Paul is saying is, what if God has appointed his wrath to fall in such a way that when it falls on the people whom he does not elect, those whom he has elected will see what they've actually been saved from. It's like the black velvet that the, the jeweler pulls out when he brings out diamonds. When the jeweler brings out diamonds, he puts a black velvet and then he shines a light on it. But it's only because of the black velvet that you can see the full glory of the diamond. And in the same way, we need the backdrop of God's wrath to appreciate his mercy. Can you imagine if the first time that Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Pharaoh just said, okay, and they went. They wouldn't have celebrated they wouldn't have appreciated and, and had zeal for God. But do you know when the first worship song is recorded in the Bible? Exodus 15, right after the Red Sea swallows up Pharaoh's army. After a great display of wrath, God's people realize what they had just been saved from as sinners. Make no distinction about it. They weren't great people. They realized what they had just been saved from as sinners, and because of that, they worshiped. Your appreciation of Jesus is directly correlated to your understanding of God's power and wrath. If Jesus is not transforming your life, it's because you don't know what he endured for you on the cross. It's, the cross will only be him dying as an example or some fable in your imagination. But if 
Jesus, if you understand that historically speaking, Jesus Christ became a human, he died on the cross and he absorbed the wrath of God, then you will fall on your knees and worship him. It's a direct correlation. And that's what Paul is, he's getting at. He's saying we have to understand what if God is demonstrating his wrath in order that the fervor of our worship would continue because we appreciate the mercy that he's given us. So, there's six application points that I think we can take home. We're going to be real quick with these. The first one is when you understand this, this doctrine of election, the first thing that it does for me and it should do for you is it should remind us of God's godness. We were talking about this passage in my community group, and I said, hey, what, what's your takeaway? What's your take home? And, and a girl, Erica, said, I've realized that I've made God too much my buddy and not enough Lord. And I would say if there's one problem in the Christian church in America, it's that we make God our buddy and we've declawed the lion. The Proverbs and the Psalms say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom in this life, if you want to have faith in this life, it starts at trembling at the fact that God is God and he has the right to do whatever he pleases. And that's what this passage teaches us. And by the way, would you want to worship a God who's lesser than that? I don't want to worship a buddy. I got plenty of buddies and they're crummy things to worship. (laughs) I want to worship the sovereign Lord of the universe. The second thing is this passage humbles me because when I look at it with honest eyes, I was meditating on it this week and I just, that, that lump of clay just hits me. God chose one to be a vessel of wrath and the other to be a vessel of mercy. And I look at that lump of clay and I say, man, I could have just as well been a vessel of wrath. There's no goodness in this. There's no goodness in me where I could be like a vessel of mercy on my own. But God chose to have mercy on me. And it brings me to my knees. You know, some people who preach the doctrine of election preach it so proudly, but where we should preach it is from right here. Like, I I can't explain it. I don't know why, God. But thank you for giving me mercy. That is what this doctrine should do to us, church. And you know what it should also do? It should change how we look at other people. Too often, Christians, we're looking down and condemning these other people because they do things that we think are silly or stupid or we don't like or we think we're better than them. But when you understand this doctrine, you realize you're better than nobody. Nobody. The only difference between us and them is God has intervened in our heart with grace. The third thing it does is it gives us assurance of our salvation. Man, sometimes we can be so anxious, can't we? I wonder if I'm part of God's elect. I don't know. Did he choose me? I don't know. I don't know. Well, in verse, chapter 10, verse 13, Paul starts saying, you have to choose him. How do you know if you're part of God's elect? Well, do you have faith? If you have faith, that means you belong to God. 
But you know what this passage tells us? It says it wasn't dependent on your works or your will. And so this gives us assurance because what wasn't started by you won't be finished by you. With what was started by God will be finished by God. So you can't lose it. If you genuinely believe, you can't mess it up bad enough. You can stray away, but he'll come and bring you home. It gives us assurance. The fourth thing it does is uh, it emboldens our prayers. I was talking with Pastor Gavin about this, and he said, when I first learned about this, it actually made me pray better for my friends who didn't know Jesus. Because this doctrine, you're not praying that God will make himself attractive to people. You're not saying, God, would you please show up and make yourself appealing so that they might choose you? No, with this doctrine, what do we say? Save them, Lord. Only you can do it. It's not on human will. It's not on exertion. You have to save them. And so we pray boldly. And then we live courageously. That's the fifth thing. We live courageously. We live uh, speaking the gospel courageously. Before I believed this doctrine, I was so, I never told, I hardly ever told people about Jesus because I was so scared I was going to mess it up. I thought I had to butter up the gospel enough so that you could swallow it down your throat, but it, I never could. <laughs> but because of this doctrine, it's like, wow, I can't mess it up. God will save whom he's elected. You know what that means? Not that I get to sit on my butt and just say, okay, God, get to work. No, I, I understand that the way that God does that is through our sharing of the gospel. It means I can't mess it up. And even when I do, I won't mess up their salvation. It means that we just get to share our love and Jesus with people and he will do the rest. And then the last thing, which is probably a more serious note, is... The last application is, it's an invitation for me to surrender. If I'm honest, the thing that is hardest about this text for me is not that God chooses his people, but that perhaps he's hardened some of the people that I love. You know? That's what's so sucky about this one. And sometimes we want to throw out this whole passage because of that. But this passage is an invitation for us to come to God and say, okay, God, I'm surrend- I don't understand, but I'm surrendering to you. And I'm giving you these people that I treasure so much. And that can be hard. And I understand that that's a big wrestle, but that's what it's calling us to do. It's calling us to, at the end of the day, surrender to the fact that he is God and we are not But though he is God, we know that because of his past faithfulness and what he's already showed us, that he is good and trustworthy. So it's an invitation to trust. So that's the doctrine of election in Romans 9. My invitation for you is to go to God humbly and honestly and say, God, show me. And if you're not a Christian in here and you're like, I did, this is a little intense. I did not expect this. Um, Here's the good news for you. It's not on you willing yourself to believe in Jesus. The good news for you is, if God is God, ask him to change his heart and he will. Ask, ask him to change your heart and he will. Um, he'll do it. So that's your invitation. So let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this 
for this beautiful doctrine, even though it's very hard sometimes. We pray that you would give us comfort and give us trust. We pray, God, that you would give us humility, but also bold confidence because we know that you are saving whom you've set out to save. We love you, God.